Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings and welcome to today's meeting in the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Bill Grant, co-chair of the club's Health and Medicine Member-Led Forum and chair of this program. I would like to thank Regina Sneed of Compassion and Choices for organizing this program as part of Reimagine End of Life, uh, which is a week exploring big questions about life and death. Today, the program is by Dr. Mike M. Turbo. It is on the end-of-life options for people concerned uh, with dementia. Uh, he is a retired physician specializing in medical oncology, a former hospice medical director, adjunct professor at Stanford University School of Medicine, and a volunteer with Compassion and Choices. Dr. Turlow. Well, thank you. Um, Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Uh, I'm not afraid of dying, but I'm terrified of getting dementia. My mother died at, uh, with dementia at age, age 83. By the time she was in her mid-60s, she could not recognize her kids. By the time she was in her early 70s, she, had, she couldn't carry on a conversation, and she lived another eight years. That's only part of the story. So her only sibling, my uncle, her brother, had dementia. Her father, my grandfather, had dementia. Both of them spent the last years of their life in a memory unit of a nursing home. My mother died in 1988. So I've had a 30-year journey evaluating how the end of my life is not going to resemble those of my mother, my grandfather, or my uncle. And the purpose of today's talk is to share what I have learned over these past 30 years to help you figure out options that are available to you at this time. So this is not going to be sort of a philosophical approach to death and dying, but a practical nuts and bolts tools approach that you can use to sort of plan for the future. So before I go any further, I need to make, give a couple thank yous and acknowledgements. One is thank Commonwealth Club for allowing me to speak here. Uh, Bill Grant has already talked about Reimagine, um, which is a week-long series of events uh, exploring death and how it affects our approach to life. And if you want to learn more about the, the events, well, there's newspapers up here. You can also go to the website, letsreimagine.org, um, and get all sorts of events from the peninsula. Marin may not be happening in Marin because of the fires. San Francisco and the East Bay. So if you go to the website, reimagine, you're going to end up learning about a Christian church. So it's less reimagine. So uh, at the, I'd also like to thank Compassion and Choices, for which I've been a volunteer for many years. Compassion Choices is a organi nationwide organization concerned with end-of-life, end-of-life choices. It was a major, major factor in the passage of the Physician Aid and Dying Law that passed in 2015, the End-of-Life Option Act in California. Uh, and just recently, it's, it's, it's come out with a dementia initiative. And at the end of the talk, outside the table, you can get this magazine or whatever you want to call it. It's an advanced planning guide and toolkit about my end-of-life decisions. And in there, I have put in a list of websites of all the organizations I have mentioned 
or will be mentioning in my talk, so you don't have to be busy trying to, to write down websites. Um, so now I've talked to you ab about my connection to dementia, and let me talk to you a little bit about my medical career and my experience with death and dying. In the almost 40 years I practiced medicine as a medical oncologist, giving chemotherapy to patients with cancer. I saw 150 to 200 new patients a year, 6,000 patients with cancer. Half of them were cured, half of them were not. I accompanied over 3,000 patients on the final journey of their life, and I learned a lot of lessons. One lesson I learned, some things cannot be fixed. In addition to being a, uh, a medical oncologist, I was a also a hospice medical director. And through those eyes and that practice, I learned a whole other set of skills and knowledge about death and dying. Some things shouldn't be fixed. I learned how I did not want to die. I learned where I did not want to die. I didn't want to die in a hospital, especially in an intensive care unit. I didn't want to die in a memory unit or a, or a nursing home like my uncle and my grandfather. I learned how to make dying easier for patients and families. I learned about a gentle death. And I learned sometimes it was necessary to hasten death. So when I step back and look at a lifetime, my lifetime or your lifetime, I see it in two sections, a fine time and a decline time. You may be fine too, and you may be in decline, but those are two aspects of the lifetime as I see it. And we want our, our fine time to be long and healthy and full of joy. And the decline time, I want to be as short as possible. So I do what I need to do to, fill my, to, 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 to make my fine time longer. I exercise, I eat healthy, I socialize, all the things you read about aging successfully. But now today, you're going to learn a little bit about how to shorten the decline time. Now, how do you want to live at the end of life? Do you want, are you more concerned about getting enough medical care? Or are you concerned about getting unwanted, aggressive medical care? I am willing to die too soon than live too long. Delaying death is not the same as prolonging life. Just think about that. Delaying death is not the same as prolonging life. Now, you need to plan, plan for the future while you're still able to. We have the mental capacity to make those decisions. Because some time may, may come where you no longer have that capacity. If I have moderate or severe dementia, I've already told my family, if I'm not able to feed myself or, or, or tell them I'm hungry or thirsty, do not offer me food. Do not offer me fluids. Now, you may totally disagree with this sort of proactive approach. And you may say, no, that's not right. When there's life, there's hope. It's God's will who, when I'm going to die, when somebody dies. You don't want to be, you know, interfere with that. Whatever your philosophy of life is, whatever your, your goals of medical treatment, have you ever thought about what goals of medical tr of treatment you want for yourself at this time? You need to make your philosophy and your goals known to your family and to your healthcare representative who you've designated on your advanced directive. So he or she 
is going to make the medical decisions for you when you are no longer mentally capable of doing that or unconscious. But they need to know or that, what you want and what your goals are. Now, I'm assuming that virtually everybody in this room has an advanced directive as named a healthcare uh, representative in that. But there are now more specific or focused ad 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 advanced directives. Has anybody here or have heard of a dementia-related advanced directive or a function-related advanced directive? Hey, raise your hands if you have. Oh, we've got a few. Good. Because I hope to, to, to prompt you to ask some questions about these at the end of the discussion. The um, dementia-related advance directive relates the goal of medical treatment that you wish with the level of cognitive functioning. And you can download this from a website, dementia-directive.org. Remember, I've got all these things down on another piece of paper, but you can collect outside. And what it does is sort of figure out what the goals of medical treatment you want to your level of functioning or your amount of, of, of dementia. Um, so, for example, next week I get pneumonia, I want antibiotics. I fall down and break my hip, I want my hip fixed. You know, I want to go the whole 10 yards. If I'm in a terrible accident or, or my heart stops, I want CPR, you can connect me to a ventilator, admit me to an ICU. Full court press. Let's say I have mild dementia or early dementia. Well, I can't go shopping alone. I can't, do, I can't write checks. I don't know how to pay bills anymore. I still recognize my family. I'm able to have fun with them and talk to them. But I get lost when I go to a... I, I, I can't find a new location on my own. Well, what kind of medical treatment do I want? Well, I still... Well, you know, I, I want antibiotics. And if I need to be admitted to the hospital, I'd be willing to do that if the doctor thought it was necessary. But that's where it stops. If I need admission into an intensive care unit, no. I don't want, I'm a DNR, do not resuscitate. I don't want CPR. And please do not attach me to a ventilator. That makes sense so far. Okay, let's take one step further. I'm really demented. I can't carry on a conversation. I can't recognize my kids or my grandkids. Uh, I can't bathe myself. I can't dress myself. I can't toilet myself. What kind of medical care do I want? Keep me at home or wherever I'm living. Don't admit, to the, admit me to the hospital. And for sure, you're not going to you know, operate on me or admit me to the ICU. Keep me wherever I'm living at that time. Now, a function-related advanced directive, which was actually recently um, released online by Compassion and Choices, and if you go to Compassion we uh, Choices website, you can, uh, you can, you can go on to uh, that, that link. And actually, it's a very, uh, it's a somewhat confusing site to, to, to maneuver through. But, the, but at the end, you can print the document you've just sort of filled out in, as, a word, as a Word document, and then you can make additions to it. So it's actually very flexible and very useful in, in that sense, as opposed to the dementia direct, uh, direct, advanced directive. You just, it's a PDF. You can't make any changes. Um, so the function-related advanced directive is like it assumes you have some cognitive impairment and then asks specific questions. 
um, I'm no longer able to drive anymore. Do you want maximum medical care to prolong your life? Or do you want comfort care, where the emphasis is on quality of life and care and not cure? Um, if, you, if you no longer can recognize your kids, your children, or your friends, do you want maximum medical care to prolong your life? Or do you want comfort care, where the emphasis is on care and not cure? So I've given you some tools that are available online, and you fill those out. And for those of you who've heard of the uh, uh, dementia-related advanced directive, how many of you have actually signed one and, and give them to your children or doctor? Raise your hands. Oh, we've got a couple of them. Okay. Well, then, so you really feel good about this. I've got a plan. My future is secure. Nothing's going to really happen. You know, I've got it all set up. Wrong. <laughs> um, there's too many conundrums. There are too many potholes in the road. Um, you have three kids. Two of them you don't recognize because you don't recognize them as strangers. You don't carry a conversation. But for some reason, the third kid you recognize. You can't remember the child's name, but you recognize that face. You know that face. And therefore, you're able to carry on some conversation. So you're going to have really two divergent viewpoints of how demented you are. Two of the kids are going to say, Dad's gone. Let's not, he, he, he said he didn't want to live like this. And the other one say, that's not gone. He's there. I see him. I talk to him. He knows who I am. He recognizes me. If it's a, if it's a, a, a majority vote, guess who wins? Um, let me give another example. You are really demented. I don't recognize my kids. I, don't, I can't carry on a conversation. But I'm happy. I'm smiling. I hum songs. You turn on the radio to the old music, old, you know, from the 50s and 60s, and I hum along, and I can even, from some of the depths of my brains, I, can, I even know the lyrics. But I'm not able to tell you I'm hungry. And I'm not able to tell you, and I'm not able to feed myself. How willing are my children to not give me food or fluids? So these are dilemmas that we'll have to look at, but there are no guarantees as soon as you lose your mental competence, you are at the mercy of the people who are making those decisions for you. Now, you may want to be more proactive than what I've already described. And there are more options if you want to be more proactive, but these actions you have to take while you still have enough mental competence and cognitive ability to make those decisions and act on your own. So there's three options I see at, that, at, at this juncture, when you're still co mentally competent enough to make these decisions for yourself, and you want to hasten your death because you don't want, you don't want to end up being in a memory unit or a nursing home or having eight years of end-stage dementia like my mother. There's stopping active treatment or declining treatment. There's suicide, taking your own life, and voluntary stopping eating and drinking, VSED, which is a, the uh, initials for that. So those are the three options that I've sort of thought about. And you're probably thinking, well, he mentioned earlier on in the talk, the End of Life Option Act, Physician Aid and Dying. Why can't I use that? 
well, what are the document, what are the parameters of physician aid in dying? In virtually all the states, I think there's 11 states now that have it intact. In, in One of them is you have to have a terminal diagnosis of six months or less, and you have to be mentally competent. Well, if you're dementia, you may have less than six months to live, but you're not mentally competent. And if you have mild uh, uh, dementia, you have much more than six months to live. So therefore, physician aid in dying is not an option in this situation. So going back to the three options I talked about, either declining active treatment or stopping active treatment. In my experience as a physician, stopping active treatment rarely works. I think it never works. I mean, except in the incidence of renal dialysis, then it works. If I've had patients with taking high doses of insulin, and we stop them thinking that death will be hastened, where the blood sugar may have gone up a little bit, but they didn't die. And there may be contraindications and reasons you don't want to stop active treatment. Let's say you have atrial fibrillation, and you're something to control the heart rate, and you're on an anticoagulant, and you stop those medications, and you get a stroke. You're worse off than you were before. So that's not a good idea. All right? Um, suicide. Well, um, taking your life. So in 1980, Derek Humphrey wrote Final Exit. And he referred to... He didn't, so it's interesting. 2019, I talk about suicide. In 1980, it was self-deliverance. Um, and there are actually a couple of different websites that will give you guidance and suggestions about how to take your own life. There's the Final Exit Network and Lost All Hope. And there's probably others around. Um, remember, taking your own life, doing suicide is not against the law. Assisting somebody in suicide is against the law. Um, so this is, I can see this being an option for some people. It's not an option I think I would take, but it's an option. And that's what this talk is about, is giving you options to manage the end of your life whenever that's going to be. So stopping eating and drinking, V said, is, is most compatible with my way of thinking. If one is failing, if one is on the, the, the uh, decline time, you lose your appetite, you don't eat as much, you lose weight. And when you're on the decline time, if you already are frail and stopping liquids, death ensues within two weeks, usually within seven to ten days, and it's usually a relatively easy death and not painful or uncomfortable. Now, there's three important takeaways. No matter what are these options you're thinking about or in when you're planning for the decline time, these three takeaways are really important. One is hospice. Um, hospice is an essential part of anybody's role in dying. Being, you know, but again, merely being demented or frail does not make you eligible for hospice. Like the End of Life Option Act, Physician Aid in Dying, you need to have a terminal diagnosis of six months or less to live. Uh, so... Just being old and, in de and declining does not, does not make you eligible for hospice. However, if you declare, on November 1st, I'm stopping eating and drinking. At that moment, on November the 1st, you become eligible for hospice. And they will provide all the services you need and your family needs to 
to support them and to keep you comfortable and not in distress in case you do become um, um, un uncomfortable. Other thing, um, and you cannot do this alone. Because many people think, I don't want to burden my family with these decisions, with my decision. They're going to try to convince me not to do this. Because they love me. Hopefully they love me. <laughs> and they want to keep me around a long time. Um, I can't tell you the number of frantic phone calls I received in my medical career from patients or their families. I'm still alive. They never, they never asked me for, for guidance about what to do. These are people who did it on their own because either they were uncomfortable in asking me or didn't want to ask me. Many of them didn't want to involve their families. They squirreled away these medications. They didn't squirrel away enough or because they were already on opiates. If you're already on opiates for pain, it's almost impossible to overdose on an opiate. It's just a waste of medication. Um, and so, so I, in, in, in that sense. And again, there's the emotional, the emotion, emotional background. If you're not able to relate to your kids how you want to die, imagine the burden they have after you die. If you try to... I had this one acquaintance um, whose, whose father, all of a sudden, he was declining and stopped eating and drinking and never discussed it with his family. Still asking the questions. What, I could, what, why? How come they didn't talk to me? What happened? I have another, another friend, Jim, a physician and colleague. And his family history of dementia was much stronger than mine. He had dementia on both his mother's side and his father's side. So his risk of getting dementia was much higher than mine. And he made plans. He scrolled away. He had this stash of medications he was going to take when, you know, just before he got fully demented. <laughs> he waited too long. And his worst dreams became a reality. And nobody knew where the medications were. Nobody could help him because he didn't, he didn't want to burden people. His son found the stash of medications under the spare tire of his car about three years later. Now, some of you in this room may have either saw the movie or read the book Still Alice, which is really a wonderful... If you haven't read it or seen the movie, both of them are good. I've, I've, uh, it's about Alice Holland is a neuroscientist at some prestigious East Coast college, and she realizes she's becoming demented. And the author is a neuroscientist, and so talks about how the descent in dementia and what you see. So, there, so dementia doesn't happen all of a sudden. So as a, as a chemotherapist, uh, there's a, you may have heard some people talking about chemo brain. So in certain patients, getting chemotherapy for cancer, it makes them demented. So it's a chemical-induced dementia. And they can see it coming. They feel, you know, so I have this librarian. And she would come to me, and she still was working, and she said, you know, they talk about the Dewey Decimal System, and I could follow it along, but, you could, but slowly but surely, the whole concept of what the Dewey De uh, Decimal System was and how it functioned completely disappeared from her mind over a period of about a year or so. So going back to Still Alice, she has uh, this plan how she's going to take her life at, at, at some time, being proactive, but at the very end, she doesn't have the wherewithal to complete the act. And again, she goes into a state of dementia. 
which he did not want to do at the end. Now, the third takeaway, and it may be the most important takeaway, is palliative care. Palliative care is a group of caretakers, physicians, nurses, social workers, whose viewpoint is quality of life, not prolongation of life. And if I'm in my decline time, I want a palliative care specialist being my advocate. And the problem nowadays is our medical system is fragmented. When's the last time a primary care doctor made rounds in the hospital? It doesn't happen. When's the last time one of them goes in the emergency room to see you? It doesn't happen. So you're carted off with what's ever happened, and they got things to fix. Your pneumonia, your broken hip, your gallbladder, whatever it is, your urinary tract infection. So they can fix all sorts of stuff. But nobody's there to keep them from fixing them. Now, your family be there. He doesn't want to do it, doesn't want to do it. But they don't have the strength of voice and loud voice like I do to keep it from happening. So pain of care specialist is really important and a vital component of this overall plan, especially when you're looking at the decline time. Because they understand the concept that I learned as a medical oncologist. Some things can't be fixed. And they also understand what I learned as a hospice medical director. Some things shouldn't be fixed. And the bottom line is, they really understand that delaying death is not the same as prolonging life. So I want you to all go stare death straight in the eye. You prepare for the worst. You hope for the best. And you embrace life with gusto. So I'll be happy to take any questions. This is a Commonwealth Club uh, program with Dr. Mike uh, Turbo discussing end-of-life options for people concerned with uh, dementia. And now we have time for questions. Who would like to ask the first question? There is an advanced illness program, which is part of hospice, and it's before you need hospice, and you can get them involved. So anyone that needs something before, if they have a, a you know, disease... Definitely, the advanced illness program is available. Thank you. And I did. I and, and where's that? Uh, I, I owned a home health agency for many, many years, so I have seen thousands of people at the end of their life. Yeah. What's the name again? Uh, the company I owned was Reliable Caregivers. It's now Home Care Assistance. Yeah. I sold it. Yeah. Oh, it's an advanced illness program. Yeah. So a lot of hospices... Connected. It's part of hospices. Yes, it's, uh, hospices will now have... Originally set up, hospices were, were taking care of people with terminally ill d- disease. Well, they saw that there was a group who they didn't fit the criteria, so they couldn't provide hospice services. So they have various names for providing palliative care with the same concept before they're, qu- quote, on hospice. Because hospice is actually... An ins- you know, it's, it's a concept about quality of life. And the Medicare definition where Medicare will pay for hospice has to do, you have to have a terminal diagnosis of six months or less. And that's so the the hospice organizations will then, for example, people in Medicare will provide home health health aides and and home care nurses as opposed to hospice nurses. And that's paid through a different mechanism. So 
I'm very interested in this subject because I saw so many people pass away without having a plan. I mean, I have a plan. I'm going to have a marching band called on it. You know, I mean, I want it, and I'm going to do it. And maybe even before I die, I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm like many people in this room, I'm sure, from... Uh, dementia and Alzheimer's intense families. And my question, I'm fairly familiar with much of this, but what nobody will talk about to me is how far can one go before being in the Alice position of no longer being competent? Like you, I would rather step off the stage a little sooner than necessary than a lot later than necessary. How do you know? Oh, well, actually, actually, the... It's a tough question, because you don't know. Now, if I thought I was declining mentally, cognitively, I would probably get mental testing, neuropsychological testing, so you get a number. You know, but the fact is that number can vary from because of other factors. So you can track how, how steep that, that downward curve is. I'm not sure how useful that would be, but again, it's one measurement of how of of where the decline is, and then they'll at some point they'll say, "Hey, you've gone from early cognitive decline to mild cognitive decline to early dementia, and then you can see if you're going even further toward moderate dementia." That's the best I could I could come with, and there and I, I'm not aware of although there are a lot of brain testing uh, programs around and memory testing. I don't have the answer. The other thing you should be aware of that I learned recently, you could have early cognitive decline, you know, you're not in demented yet, um, or mild cognitive decline, and, and we'd be retested a year later, and one of three things will happen. 50% of the people will stay the same, 25% will get worse, and 25% will get better. And why do they get better? Well, it depends. When you take the test, it depends. Did you sleep well the night before? Are you worried about something? Are you distracted? Are you, are you grieving for the loss of your parent, your mother or father who died a year ago? So these tests have so many different factors on them. I wish I knew. If you find out, let me know. What, you know. <laughs> so the day before, I like to find out the day before I'm not able to do it anymore. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Uh, thank you for your remarks and for um, explaining these forms that I didn't know about. And I just wanted to put, though, a fine point on the comments about uh, ensuring your children, or in my case, I don't have children, but ensuring whomever has your medical POA to know what you want. My experience caring for my parents, one of whom had dementia as they declined and then died, was that the medical professionals didn't tear up their advanced health care directives, but they basically looked at me and said, what do you want to do? Period. It was up to me because I was medical POA and my siblings. POA is power of attorney. Power of attorney. That medical professionals, hospitals, caregivers, 
they, they, what, what we wanted to do is what was going to happen, not what my parents had put in their advance. So just, just a word to the wise, just again, how important it is definitely to uh, thank you for these forms dealing with dementia. And I will fill one out, but to really make sure the people who will be making these decisions understand what you want. And you have to talk to them. And one of the ways you can address that issue is you have your family members, whoever your health care representative is, have to witness it, have to sign it. Because that way, you know, if, if it, well, some kids, I've heard people say, well, my kids don't want to talk about it with me. You know, when you say, you have to, you need to, I need, it's not going to happen unless you sign this. You have to sit down with me. Yeah, although, technically, you don't have to have a witness, but that it's one way of getting your family to, to, to listen to you. I've been doing some research on accessing palliative care, and um, some things I've read online say, that some doctors or hospitals are not happy when you ask to bring a palliative care person in. Um, do you have experience with that, or do you have any advice? Well, I have some advice. My experience with it, obviously, I'm comfortable with it. But the fact is, it's like a second opinion. I'm an oncologist, and everybody wanted a second opinion. And I would encourage it. And what I would do, they'd say, well, I want to go to Stanford. I said, well, I teach at Stanford. I know what they do. If you're going to get, you need to go somebody at USC. Or this is such a rare cancer. There's somebody in LA who knows more about this than anybody else. And I, and I would send them to somebody who has a different opinion than me. And the, fa- and the patient would come back and say, I don't know what to do. You say this and he says that. What do I do? <laughs> the fact is, so the fact is, you, you have to stand up for your right to say, I need, no, I'm declining. I'm not sure if I want all this treatment. And I want to see what some of the op- other options are to keep me comfortable. That's, you know, that's what you can say. And you're right. It's not a perfect system. And that's the best I can say. Um, I have two, two comments. One is that some people are now filming their last wishes. Mm-hmm. and doing on video so people can see and know that you're saying exactly what you want and your family would be comfortable with that. And the second, I wanted to mention a film that one... Best foreign film in 2004, The Sea Inside, which is about this topic. It's about a true story. Um, Javier Bardem is the star of it. Definitely worth seeing if this issue is important. The, the Sea Inside. The C-S-E-A? S-E-A. The Sea Inside. I highly recommend it um, on many levels, but this okay. is particularly the story. Thank you. Thank you for this important talk. I'm appreciative to learn. I've had two experiences, though, I wanted to ask you about with uh, mothers of friends. In one, the woman was in a nursing home, but the nursing home, from what I understand, gets dinged if a patient loses weight, more than 10% of their body weight. So they were constantly encouraging her to have insurer and this and that and the other thing and milkshakes. And I finally realized she doesn't want it, and I stopped being part of the team and just enjoyed her in the ways that I could. And in the other case, uh, a friend's mother had repeated UTIs and was very uncomfortable and they kept treating them. Is that something that can be treated in a way to make them comfortable, but would the UTI then progress to death? So urinary urinary tract infections can be... um treated with peridium or other things that will anesthetize the, 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 the lining of the bladder and the urethra, the tube coming out, so it's not burning as much. Now, physician aid in dying and all the things I talked about in institutions is much more difficult because they have rules and regulations. And then they have personnel. So, for example, one of the, uh, 
retirement communities down in Palo Alto where I live. They have a very sophisticated clientele, but all the nursing staff is, are from the Philippines and are Roman Catholic. So for them to take advantage of the End of Life Option Act, the people need to go back to their apartment and have their family tend to them because the nurses do not want to participate because they feel it's wrong. And you have to respect that, but it's a difficulty. Now, you talk about, depending, and I don't know which is what, so the difference between an assisted care and a nursing home. One comes under state regulations, and one comes under federal regulations. So state regulations, well, you can do end-of-life option, physical physician aid in dying, and the other one is federal, and that's against the law. So being an institution makes things more difficult. Being at home where you've got the freedom to do what you want is ideal, but that may not always happen. Hi. I actually have two questions. Um, one, one has to do with the... Um with the families, like it sounds like there's a new template on compassion care and choices yes. that I hadn't seen before. And so that's like when you talk about when I can't drive the car, then this, or if I don't recognize someone, then this. Is there a template that has all those sort of scenarios languaged out? Um, no, uh, the one in compassion choices doesn't. I just threw those in because those are, um, but, ag but again, the nice thing about the compassion choices, you can download it as a Word document and start adding some things to it. Um, and okay. so that's the best. It I can. seems like you'd need to sort of talk to a specialist to even kind of, I don't, I mean, I had never even thought of it that way until you said it. So like if I um, drive, this is a work in progress. Mm -hmm. and so I'm on the 11th revision of my advanced directive. Oh, okay. okay. Um, <laughs> um, and it keeps, it gets, it gets com more complicated and more complicated because I thought I had all the answers. And then I was talking to someone the family member of somebody who, who did physician aid in dying. And she's racked with guilt. So she was enthusiastic. And she, this is what her mother wanted, and she did it. But she, then if she's feeling guilty, she helped her mother die. I mean, so it's, it's complicated. It is really, really complicated. The other thing that you need to, you, if you're interested in doing any of the things I've talked about, you need to have self-awareness. You need to be aware of how your mind's working. If you're in denial, none of this is going to happen. You know, and the other thing I've told my son, I remember my telling my father, Dad, you shouldn't drive. You're getting too old. You, you know, and my dad would never listen to me. So I told my son that if I say, no, I'm okay driving, just remind me about my interaction with my father. Okay, so my second question was, um, for people that don't have family that would help them, help them not eat, <laughs> help them by not helping them with food, what, what could someone like that do? Do I mean if someone was getting dementia but didn't have like adult children that could be there? Um, well, that's the same question. Whether just getting oh no, if you're alone, no, a good friend. For example, when I give talks at a continuing care retirement community, most of the people have designated their kids as their healthcare representatives. Why? You and your neighbors talk about this all the time. You see your neighbors dying off. So you know they know more about you and what you want. Than, than, than your kids do. Name, you don't have to name your kids as a, 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 your healthcare representative, but you need to name somebody. Somebody's got to do it, and you, you have a friend, etc., that you can name. So it doesn't have to be a family member. And if you want to name somebody else other than your family member, then what you need to do is sit down with your children and tell them why. You know, my son's a bleeding heart. He, you know, you know he's going to have this. is going to be a real difficult situation for him. You know, um, I have some friends who, 
who, who you know, wouldn't bat an eye to, to push me along the road. Um, my question was, I have been told that failure to thrive is a diagnosis that can get you into a hospice. It does not sound like that's correct. That's what true if you're really failing. You know, if all of a sudden you've lost lots and lots of weight, um, and that's true. But again, it's a six months or, or not. So, for example, I'm old and frail, uh, and I'm cognitively somewhat impaired, and I'm using a walker to get along, okay? And um, that's not enough to get me to hospice. But, if I, but I know if I fell and broke my hip, the reality is if I'm already f- using a walker and I'm pretty frail and I'm not fully up here working right, I'm never going to use that walker again. I'm going to end the rest of my life in bed or in a wheelchair. So why fix my hip? I mean, that's just sort of editorial comment that I forgot to include during my talk. <laughs> Hi, my name is Sean Angles. I'm a professional fiduciary in California, which is a licensed professional fiduciary, which is a licensed uh, career in California uh, to help people, particularly individuals such as solo agers, which is, I think I just wanted to compliment your answer. Some um, resources that are available are a professional fiduciary that would help you at end of life. That's a non-family member. Um, and you do need to be licensed to practice, such as a conservator or to take care of a person's financial affairs. So that's something to look into. Two other resources are in in San Francisco. I just learned there's um, um, uh, the resources um, um, end of life doulas, which are persons that help plan your end of life before, during, and after. And um, another organization is um, Don't Die Alone is an organization in San Francisco that ensures people that are aging as solos will always have a community to help them through this. So there's three options. I just And there's actually another organization you just reminded me of. I've talked about the End of Life Option Act. Well, now there's the End of Life Option, End of Life Options California. And it was, it's, it's, it's initial focus is to help deal, have people deal with the End of Life Option Act physician aid in dying, but they've expanded their focus about all end of life in a situation where they may have people, volunteers, etc., who will act, act like that or, you know, in, in that role. End of, life, uh, uh, end of Life California, something like that. Uh, and I, that's not, I just learned about that after I typed that. I wasn't about to add a, a seventh website to my, to my list. Oh, actually, it's on there. It is on there. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> that was a sick joke. <laughs> Way in the I, back. Oh, about him, sorry. I have a couple of things. Um, over a period of time, we've had family or, or close friends who have been hospitalized, and the hospital would or they would contact us, maybe themselves, to tell us that they were just told that they would have so much time left. And we realized that it's because they were on some kind of a morphine something or other, and that's how they helped them to progress through whatever was going on. It doesn't seem to me that that's something that happens anymore. Is that correct? Oh, no, I think, I mean, morphine is still a useful drug if you're in pain. 
Um, but the fact that they can predict that you you have two weeks so that you're going to have only whatever amount of time it is. Oh, no, that's... Oh, it, it, um, actually, the best predictors are family members. I mean, if I had to compare what I thought to what family members thought during when I was actively practicing, they were more often right than, than I. Because mm-hmm. I only get glimpses of the patient... And the patients would really rise the occasion for me. Okay, I'd come in and they'd be, you know, and they'd say, no, we haven't seen mom so good for the last two weeks. Okay. You know, she's not no, eating and this and that. No, and I'm so, talking about a friend who was at Kaiser Hospital uh, and they contacted me or had him contact me to say that he had so much time yeah. left and come see him now. They had to know a reason there had to be a reason why they knew he had so much time left. Well, the same with Dawn's mother. Yeah, yeah you can, you can, you, it's very, you, you can really see when people decline. You know, they don't have much left, much time left. And you know so what the disease progression the is. the hospital just knows that. Well, no, the physicians know. And people know you have a, a good sense about when things are really closing down or because they've adjusted, changed the medications, yeah. et cetera, and how to do it so they know, hey, this is going to... You know, when this medication gives out, the bottom's going to drop out. And so, yeah, it's not unusual to make the predictions. And the, the predictions may be in, inaccurate, but still within a reasonable uh, yeah. derivation of that. Yeah. So the other thing, um, I've always been a planner. And we started our estate plannings, what, 30 years ago? Well, 30 years ago. Um, I knew that I was going to control my life and everybody around it and had everything in place. <laughs> and one of the They're things, laughing because they all do the same thing, okay? <laughs> except I didn't know that that might change, ever. <laughs> so that was a long, long time ago. And one of the things I put in there was a competency committee so that before anybody, before the housekeeper could say she's crazy and they take me away, um, they would have to discuss it with others. And I chose who the competency committee would be, and I was going to be honored. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why not? Why not? You know, they might think I'm strange because of what I'm doing, but if I can explain why I'm doing it, then maybe I could pass, and I probably would be okay about it if they overruled me, but I certainly wanted my way. Well, there was a whole lot of other stuff in that estate plan. We've renewed it twice since. Each time I might have gotten a little wiser. The last time is just now. We're just struggling through it in many ways, and um, you know, I was surprised that the mortuary we had chosen... It went out of business. <laughs> um, you know, there were all kinds of things that changed. And the other thing I realized is I can't do it all. I cannot control my future. I can live the best I can live now, but somebody else is going to figure out when I'm nuts and they're going to send me someplace. Yeah. And I can't do a lot about that. <laughs> Some questions in the back there. It's more of an observation. When you select someone to handle your your decisions when you can't make them any longer, you have to make sure that person is physically available because over time, the people that I had appointed, you know, lived in another part of the world. 
So you have to update that because people move, people aren't available, and there's no one to ask. No one's going to work hard enough if you are by yourself to find this person. So you either have to update your material all the time or um, you know, make sure you know that, that there are the instructions for where that person is. The other thing about having parents that still want to drive, it's very hard to get the car keys and you don't want to feel responsible if they kill someone or hurt someone. And I found a way to do that is to hire a driving teacher and to make the decision with my father. If this person who we don't know says, you should not be driving, you will give up your keys and your license. And that's a way to have a better relationship with your family member. That's a good idea. She sparked a thought in my mind. Uh, over 20 years ago, I had a heart attack. And I had always said, I'm not afraid of dying and, uh, you know, don't worry about me when the time comes. And everybody always said, well, yeah, it's like that until you actually experience it. But when I had my heart attack, <laughs> my kids were all living in other states. And uh, it was late at night when they figured out what was going on. And so they asked if I wanted them to call my kids. And I said, why don't you wait till the morning till we know more about it? And they said, well, you may not be here in the morning. <laughs> and they, it, it was very serious. And, and I recognized that. And I still was fine with it. So I said, I express that to everybody I know, that when somebody says that they are not concerned about dying, you can take the fact that it's true sometimes. But what she said that, that sparked a thought with me, I have contacted all of my kids, my ex-wife, when she was still my wife, everybody knows what my my desires are at the end of life. And so... If I do have to get somebody local to take that step for me, it still won't be a problem because they all know there's nobody that's going to argue about it. And I think that's an important thing is that if you know somebody that may object to it, those are the people you need to let know. In writing, in writing what your wishes are, wouldn't that outlive? It doesn't always work. Doesn't always work. I, I can tell you from, you know, you have, you know, all these plans out and you have the, 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 the child from out of town says, well, how come you, you know, this and that. I mean, it, in the ideal world, it should work. But it, dying and with the families, I mean, it's difficult. I mean, it's a, there's a lot of baggage and a lot of things you can't predict. And that's one of the reasons I talk about maybe it's better when you still got, you know, the day before you become mentally incompetent to, you know, do with, with still that what, what Alice Holland wanted to do. My physician uh, recommended that I file an advance directive with my local hospital, which I did, so that if I'm brought in by ambulance, they have yes. everything right there. So That's right. Now, but I'm not sure if your local hospital, if you had one of these focused ones, you know, yeah, because you don't want to be in the hospital at that time. So you, you need, so, because they're going to react to you no matter what. They don't read the advance directive until you're really doing poorly. So if you were demented and you ended up in the emergency room and you had a broken hip or pneumonia or, or whatever, they're going to be working now. They're not going to be reading your advance directive. So, I mean, it's, it's a crapshoot out there when you're getting old and, and declining. You know? Spread them around so everybody has one. <laughs> There, there also is another form called Five Wishes, and the Five Wishes does actually, um, you know, uh, kind of explain what you want. It's not a legal form, but I gave it to everybody. I gave it to my doctor. I gave it to my friend that's going to pull the plug because she's the only one that's brave enough to do it. <laughs> I gave it to my sister, who's very Catholic, who would never 
pull the plug. So she's not going to be involved. And I gave it to my children. So, I mean, it's, it's, I think, you know, you need to, I think the idea of filming it yourself, filming it and having it so that they have it, I think is a great idea. Yeah. I'm, I'm always concerned about what you're talking about. Are, are those people going to get in trouble for no. following? No, I mean, if you, no. They, they, actually, if you, really, if you read the, some of the dementia advanced directives, they use the term spoon feed. And what happened up in the state of Washington, they had a advanced directive, etc. And then I can't remember if they were in, a, in an institution or at home, but the fact is, is that um, the caretakers did, you know, continue to feed them, even though they said, do not feed her. Well, the, the terminology in the form they used talked about, do not uh, feed me, implying intravenous feeding or tube feeding. They ne never mentioned by mouth. And that's the reason these forms now say spoon feeding. I mean, there's because the 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 at the at during the trial, they, that's what the judge's decision is that they cited on the on the side of the caretakers of the institution because it didn't it was not specific enough. So, so it's almost one o'clock. We'll get a couple more questions and then it's time for I, lunch. <laughs> I have a friend who uh, was on a panel about end of life options in Santa Rosa, and she came away saying. Don't bother with the pulsed. Can you talk about the difference between the pulsed and the, I don't know what it stands for. Yeah, a physician order, order for life-sustaining treatment. The and pulse the advanced is, health care. Yeah, when, so as soon as you get in your decline time, I only have time to talk about a certain number of things. So uh, in the decline time, you want a pulsed. What a pulse is, uh, so, if if, so if emergency uh, personnel come out, they may or may not follow your advanced directive, your dementia advanced directive, your function-related advanced directive. But if they have a physician order for life-sustaining treatment, that is a physician order, and they will follow it. And in there, you have choices. I want maximum treatment. Start my heart. You can put me on a ventilator. Or do not start my heart. Don't, do not take me to the hospital. So, and you can change that from time to time. So if I have mild dementia... So if you're fit, uh, fit and healthy, and uh, you don't need a pulse. It was interesting. A friend of mine who's 84 but really in great shape, his, his uh, state attorney gave him a pulse to fill out. And he asked me what I should do with it. And I said, throw it away. I mean, there's no reason for it. So a pulse is helpful when you start declining. Because then you can start say, I don't want antibiotics for pneumonia. I, I don't want this or that. So it will And then as you get more demented, you can change it. You, you can... You can Get rid of other medical goal, other medical treatments that to to avoid having at the end of life. And so, where are they secured? The post? Uh, most, yeah, mo, yeah, most hospitals, uh, yeah, me medical offices will have them. It's, it's P O L S T. They're pink, and you hang them on the refrigerator because the because the emergency um, uh, medical technicians, the ambulance drivers, knows that's where you're going to have it on the front of the. Uh, refrigerator. And they can see because it's bright pink. Okay. So just expanding on that pulsed form a little bit, the bulk of physicians don't use it because they're not comfortable with the language. It's got a great website. They're state-specific. So it's CA, California, pulsed, 
org, where there's a lot of information on the website and family members can learn about it. And you kind of have to push your doctor to get them to complete a pulse. And many people, when they're older, do want to have a pulse, even if they're in good health, because if your heart stops beating and you stop breathing, that's potentially an invitation for an exit, and you might just want to make that comfortable. Uh, and the only other thing that I wanted to add that is a really good tool readily available is something called Go Wish. So Go Wish cards are available online through the Coda Alliance. And it's a deck of cards with different priorities. And I will recommend that people use it to start a conversation. And it's good sometimes for family members. You can get different colored decks and you prioritize what your goals are. And all of this is about redefining, making clear what your goals are towards the end of life. Yeah, yeah I didn't include goals because I talked about philosophy of life, etc. But you know, that, basically, that's the first step. And in the workbooks that are outside, that's the first step they ask. What are your goals? What makes life worth living? What do you find best about being alive? And, and you work through it. This is a complicated, complicated process. And most of you here in this room have already thought about a lot about it. What you got to do is put your wishes and your thoughts in the, on paper some, in some way and start working along that line. So this is the first step for many of you, the first step of, of many steps, because this keeps on evolving and changing uh, month by month or year by year. As I already said, I'm on my 11th, advanced, 11th version of my advanced directive. So thank you for these great co co uh, questions. Yeah. This is the end of the pro I'm program. I am Bill Grant, co-chair of the club's health and medicine member-led forum and chair of this program. We thank Dr. Mike Turbo for his comments here today. We also thank our audiences here, as well as those listening to this recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating more than 116 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Thank you, Bill. <laughs>